Hey, what's going on? So today I want to talk about my 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat that I did in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And this was one of the most profound experiences of my life. I know I've, you might have heard me talk about this before if you've seen any of my other videos, but this was a life transformational experience for me. So I came into it and I was a nightclub promoter in Las Vegas and a dating coach right before I went to Thailand to do this meditation retreat. So I, to say the least, was immersed in this environment of overstimulation, of texting people all the time, um, especially as a promoter. You have to be on your phone all the time. And it's constantly having to communicate and go out with people and um, and entertaining and so the 10 day vipassana meditation retreat is a silent retreat where you can't talk to anyone for 10 days and you also can't use any technology you can't use your phone you can't use your computer you can't really do much outside of just meditating and being and existing and they feed you a couple of times a day. So the one I went to, we ate at 7 a.m. and 11 a.m. And we didn't eat after 12 noon. And you only eat vegan meals. So there's a lot of restriction. But at the same time, it's kind of like what um, that saying by Jocko Willink. He talks about how discipline equals freedom. And that's something that I feel like is embodied in this meditation retreat where... If you discipline yourself to living a life, a more Spartan life, where it's more minimalistic, you remove all the external voices, the distractions, the phones, that's really the biggest thing is spending 10 days with yourself and only your own internal voice and the voice of the monks that you're with, because basically you're living with the monks and the other people part participating in the retreat. Doing that, you learn a lot about yourself. And a lot of people are afraid to have that conversation with themselves. They're afraid of what's going to come up because we tend to suffer a lot of emotional trauma early, earlier in our lives. And we never really work through it or resolve it or process what happened. And it's not even just trauma, it's also memories of the past. So when I first So when I first got to the meditation retreat I remember I remember the first thing that I did was I slept for like 19 hours the first day or maybe it was the second day. So what happened was, you know, when I first got there, we had the orientation um, and then we showed up to there was like the chanting session, the induction or introduction ceremony and then we went to our rooms and it's very uh, sparse. It's really just a bed and a meditation cushion and nothing much else. And I remember at first thinking about, okay, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? That's, where, that's how our brains are wired is like, what, what do we do next? What do we do next? And I kept telling myself, okay, well, there's actually nothing that I have to do. I don't have to run any errands. I don't have to talk to anyone I don't have to see anyone I'm really just here I'm just here 
And the second day, I think because the first day, it kind of starts to sink in. And the second day, I was just exhausted. So I slept most of the day and actually missed one of the uh, ceremonies or the, it was like a chanting thing that we have every evening um, because I just slept. And that made me realize how sleep deprived most of us are. We don't even realize it because we're constantly on our phones, we're consuming blue light and we're on our laptops and that artificially keeps us up. But having that space of just sitting there with yourself, you start to realize how tired you are from all this sleep de deprivation that has accumula accumulated over the days or months or even years of just being on the go all the time. And I remember just sleeping most of that day. And I woke up the next day and felt great. And from then on, I was able to wake up at 5 a.m., which is the time you're supposed to wake up at the meditation retreat. Um, I would wake up effortlessly and that had never happened to me before but it's because I was able to sleep very easily at 9 p.m. so if you're looking for a cure to insomnia just do a meditation retreat because oftentimes the reason why we have insomnia is because we have these voices running through our heads constantly so allowing yourself that space allowing those voices to run be able to process your memories and your thoughts and letting them go, you begin to realize that a lot of things aren't just that big of a deal. And that was another huge realization that I had is a lot of these things that I think are significant in life are titles, you know, getting a degree, our rep, you know, our status, Some of the goals that I had at the time too, they just weren't that important in the grand scheme of things. When you think about the universe, right? You, you begin to take a different perspective because you're like, okay, well, I can't work towards my goals right now because I'm here in this retreat and I can't like work on my business or I can't work towards any goals. I'm just here. And it forces you to be really present with yourself. And to realize that a lot of these identities that we carry with us are just artificial. They're really imposed upon us by society or by our friends or our family. They're reinforced by the people around us because we really begin to see that these identities are almost permanent. So let me give you an example. So for example, maybe right now, you might act a certain way, but when you go back home and you hang out with your high school friends or your friends from your childhood, you start to act differently. It's almost like you take on a different identity. And it's because those people, they know you as a different type of person and you almost revert back to who you were. And we carry with us all these types of identities. It's almost like these multiple personalities based on the context of the people that we hang out with, whether it's with our friends, whether it's with our family, whether it's with our people we know from college, from high school, from work, whatever it is, we carry with us these identities and really they're self-imposed or they're imposed upon us by society and we start to believe it. And they're determined by our environment. 
So when we take on these identities, we start to behave in alignment with them. But what I realized in the meditation retreat is those identities are really just an illusion. These job titles, these degrees, these certifications, who I'm known as among my high school friends, who I'm known as among my college friends, who I'm known as among my work colleagues, these are really just made up. And it's for the sake of convenience because we inherently want to categorize people because it just makes life a little bit easier for us to understand, right? Because imagine if we didn't have any titles or even names, it would be hard for us to run society efficiently. So yeah, I understand why these things are necessary in order to function, but sometimes we take them to an extreme and we almost take them like they're permanent and we can't change who we are. So that was a huge realization that I had during the meditation retreat. I kind of knew this beforehand, but I experienced it firsthand because the meditation retreat, there's no one there to reinforce your identity, even as a son or a brother. You don't even communicate with family. You don't communicate with your friends. There's no one to reinforce who you are. So what you become is actually just a being in the world and this is something that Heidegger talks about. He's a philosopher. And he talks about how Dasein is essentially just being in the world, right? It's, a, it's an essencing of an ontological being, basically meaning that really at the end of the day, there isn't any sort of purpose or end to what we're doing. We're just in existence. So let me give you an analogy because I want to unpack this a little bit. It's almost like we're no different from a dog or an ant. I remember during my meditation retreat, watching the ants just walking by and thinking to myself, what is the difference between myself and that ant? Just because I have a higher level of cognition from evolution, because our brains evolved evolutionarily, does that make me superior to this ant? because they're just being run by programs. But when I think about it, we're a lot more like an ant than we anticipate or that we estimate. We think that because we have the ability to reason that somehow we're superior to all other animals or beings, but in actuality, we're actually being run by programs a lot more than we actually think we are. Our subconscious minds determine most of our decisions and most of our decisions are based on emotion more than logic and reason. But we have almost this delusion that most of our decisions are based on reason because we have the ability to reason and compared to an animal, we do have a higher level of cognition, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're even rational creatures, right? If you look at behavioral economics, there's so many experiments that show the irrationality of humans compared to what would be rational for an, a homo economicus, or I forgot exactly what the terminology is, but in the book Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein, they talk about what would an 
a totally rational, economically rational human being? How would they act? And there are so many discrepancies that have been uncovered by behavioral, econ behavioral economists. The incongruency between how humans, how a rational human being would act and how humans actually act. So here's one instance is with the ultimatum game. This is a game in game theory where basically imagine that you have $10 and let's say it's me and you and we have $10. Now here's the game is one of us chooses how, how to distribute the money and the other person either agrees or disagrees to it. If they agree to it, then we both get the money. But if we disagree, then neither of us get the money. So here's how it goes is let's say I am the one to determine whether, you know, how to split up the money. So I could either say, let's do five and five. Let's do four and six. Let's do one and nine. So according to behavioral economics or just an economically rational perspective, what makes sense is, well, let me, let's backtrack a bit. Let's say, for example, I say that I want to split it five and five. What would you want to do? Well, that sounds reasonable and we're both making money. So let's do it. You agree to it and we both get five and five. Now, what if I say instead, let's do one and nine. I get, or sorry, let's do one and nine. You get $1. I get $9. Do you accept that deal? Here's the interesting thing is from an economically rational perspective, you should actually take that deal because $1 is better than $0. It doesn't matter how many dollars I'm getting. But when they actually did this experiment in person, they found that most people declined that deal. Pretty much everyone declined that deal on the basis of fairness. They said it wasn't fair that they were receiving $1 and I was receiving $9. Here is one of the key concepts that I believe is so important in society. And I think this game really il illustrates it is we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. We're constantly saying that's not fair. We want equality but we're not looking at our own progress. Zero is better than one, but because we say that you're getting nine and I'm getting only one, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we're declining the deal. We're saying that that's not fair. I don't want you to have nine. I want us to have five and five. I want an equal distribution, but because we're not getting an equal distribution, let's not do the deal. So you're actually ruining a good deal by not agreeing to it, even though it's beneficial for both parties. And I think this comes down to my next point, which is gratitude and appreciation versus entitlement. This was a huge realization for me during the retreat is it was around day six or day seven. And I remember I had all these thoughts racing through my brain. So after the first few days, I had, you know, I kept thinking and thinking and thinking. I'm naturally very 
introspective. I think a lot. And so by day six or day seven, there was a day where I almost had a panic attack because I had so many thoughts and memories rising to the surface from my childhood that I began to feel overwhelmed. And I remember having this thought like, it was almost like my life was flashing before my eyes. And I had convinced myself that I was about to die because I was having this experience of my life flashing before my eyes. And I actually had a vision of my stepfather who, he passed away back in 2013. And this meditation retreat was around 2017. So it had been a few years, but I had this vision of him basically saying like, these are the final moments that you're going to have. Basically implying that I'm about to die. And I remember feeling this this deep feeling of remorse and, and sadness, basically mourning my own death before it was about to happen. And so I went to the temple to go meditate and just thinking and taking it all in and realizing I might die tonight. I might have a heart attack. I thought I convinced myself that I was probably going to have a heart attack. I was probably going to die that night in my sleep. And there was nothing I could do about it. So I had all these thoughts racing through my mind. I had all these memories bubbling to the surface from my childhood, from preschool, from kindergarten, things that I didn't really remember until that retreat. And I went back to my room and just thinking to myself, okay, well, I, this is it. Once I close my eyes and I go to sleep, I'm dead. So I closed my eyes and I drifted off to sleep. And it was basically a dreamless sleep that night. And I woke up the next morning surprised because I woke up. But I realized that everything that I had before that, life is not something that we're entitled to. That's what I realized, is that life is not something that we are entitled to. It's really a privilege. It's something that we're given, and it's a gift. It's not something that we're entitled to. We don't necessarily do anything to deserve life. And when I woke up that morning, I had that realization that This is all just a bonus. Our life is really just a bonus. And I woke up with so much gratitude because of that, because I didn't have any expectations that I even was supposed to live. I didn't have any expectations around that. So going back to the ultimatum game, when we expect things to be fair. When we expect that we should be getting $5, but we only get $1 and we reject the offer and we shoot ourselves in the foot when we self-sabotage, I believe that it comes from this fundamental understanding of gratitude and appreciation that because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others or because we're constantly looking for fairness, we don't appreciate what we already have. 
And because of that, we self-sabotage all the time. We decline all these deals that are given to us. We decline all these opportunities because we see it as not fair. We see it as they're getting more than I am. So I'm rejecting the deal, even though I'm making more than I did before, even though I'm, I'm better off, right? So it doesn't even matter. It's like by rejecting the deal, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I've done this so many times too when it comes to business where I had a good partnership and I no longer wanted to work with them because I felt like I was doing more work than they were. I felt like I was contributing more. So I felt like it was unequal or unfair. Even though we were both winning together, we were both better off, I felt like I was doing more work and that's coming from a place of expectation and entitlement over appreciation and gratitude. So I am guilty of it just as much as anyone else's. So that was another one of my huge realizations. So number one was really the sleep deprivation thing when, we, when I first got there. Number two was the identity thing, realizing that we don't really have labels or no more significant than an ant. And number three was expectation versus gratitude. So that was my experience on the meditation retreat and made me realize a lot of things about my life. And I was a dating coach at, at the time, so I was thinking sometimes in the context of that as well. And I know that you might be watching this and maybe that's where you are right now because I know that I have some people watching this that are interested in that topic. And what I can say, here's an analogy for you, is I remember telling guys that the reason why they get nervous before they go talk to someone or talk to a girl, they experience social anxiety, which I hate to call it anxiety because it brings on all these intense feelings that are unnecessary, I believe. But the reason why that comes on, that sensation, is because we're coming from a place of entitlement instead of appreciation. We're coming from a place of obligation that we have to do something instead of we get to do something. So instead of viewing it as I have to go talk to this person, whether it's with dating, whether it's with business, we think about it like I have to go talk to this person. It's an obligation. If I don't do it, I'm going to beat myself up. Instead of I get to talk to this person. I don't have to. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. And I'm appreciative of that. When you come from it from that place, I talked about this in an earlier video, but there's actually scientific proof that your biological markers, like your heart rate variability, your respiration, your blood pressure, behave differently in a state of appreciation instead of a state of frustration and expectation. So I invite you to consider that if you're watching this and you're thinking about applications of these principles. That's a huge one is you see an attractive girl walk by or an attractive guy walk by, whether you're male or female. And you want to go talk to them, but something's holding you back. The part of you that's probably holding you back is that you're expecting a certain outcome or result from it. 
But if you were truly appreciative and grateful, you would walk up with no issues. The next question, I'm gonna keep this brief, but the next question is how do you actually do that? And I've been in pursuit of the answer to this for the last few years. And for me, I found what works for me. And what I can say is it's not gonna work the same for every single person. But I'll give you an example of what works for me because you need to find your source or medium of expression. What I mean by that is for me, I'm a very visual person. So visualization works for me. Visualization, I believe, is one of the most powerful instruments that we have as a human being. And I've actually spoken with Hall of Fame athletes. And this is someone that you know, I know from, from Derek's network um, that have used visualization to uh, accomplish amazing things. But it doesn't just work with sports, it works with everything. And he actually talked about this. Where he told myself and my friend, he said, basically, he used to visualize every situation, even social situations, even situations where he was about to go into some sort of social conflict or confrontation, he would visualize it and practice it in his mind before actually going into that situation. But the key thing is that you want to bring emotion and feeling into that visualization instead of just imagining the thing you want to bring in the emotion that you're experiencing in that moment of your visualization instead of just imagining this is what's going to happen emotion is the most powerful component this is the part that most people leave out in order to actually be effective with visualization you must also visualize and experience the emotion the feeling of being in that situation as well that's actually more powerful than the actual steps or the events that are going to happen. The second thing that I do is I write what I'm grateful for every single day. Every single morning, I write 20 things I'm grateful for. I actually got this exercise from Derek, in case you know who Derek is. I wake up every morning and I write down 20 things I'm grateful for and immediately it goes from that state of entitlement, right? Sometimes you might be in a state of entitlement. Sometimes you might wake up with gratitude, but this brings more predictability into your day. If you have a solid morning routine where you essentially get your vibrations in alignment, it helps with the rest of your day. So I like to start it off. I like to start every day off with me writing my gratitude, my goals, and listening to a guided meditation. And then I get into my day. That's like my cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink any sort of caffeine. I react very strongly to caffeine. So instead, I do this. I do gratitude, goals, and a guided meditation, which also is kind of like visualization as well, because I do visualize some stuff um, along with that. Because people talk about vibe, they talk about all these esoteric concepts, but when you break it down, it's, it's real, it's tangible. They talk about your vibration. People find this as an abstract concept, but I actually see it as also very tangible. 
because your vibe is essentially reflected with these biological markers as well. You can measure it with your heart rate variability, with your blood pressure, with your respiration. When you're in a certain state and you vibrate a certain energy, you can actually see that physiologically as well. It's not just something that's in the mind. It's not something abstract. It's also measured physiologically too, but is that really important? So to some people, it's important to have that scientific proof. But for me, I just trust it. And regardless of where you're at with that, I just invite you to try some of these things and to think about how to get into that state. And I think one of the most important concepts is levels of energy. And so I also encourage you to read this book. It was recommended by my, one of my business mentors, Eli Wild. And it was recommended to him by this guy, Owen Cook. You might know him. Um, he goes by RSD Tyler on YouTube. And these are guys that I both look up to. Um, and so this book, I, when I first read it or first listened to it on Audible, I listened to it three times in a row because it was mind-blowing to me. Um, but anyway, so that's pretty much it. I'm just going to wrap it up here because I, I'm getting a little bit on a tangent. But that was my experience on a Vipassana 10-day meditation retreat. I think that if everyone did it, that it would change the world. I think it's something that you need to experience at least one time in your life. I don't usually say that about many things, but this is the one thing that I believe that everyone needs to experience at one time in their life. So with that being said, hopefully this helps you and talk to you later.